Let's open our Bibles together to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to pick up a little earlier from where Kyle and the children were. We'll look at verses 1 through 14 of Luke chapter 2. Very familiar passage to us. But it might have a couple of unexpected twists before we get done. Please listen as I read. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So read the words of the living God. Our Father, we ask you to fill us all with your spirit this morning and draw us to the truths that are revealed here, this, this story that is so familiar to us, but would you capture our hearts and our imaginations anew with the glory of what occurred in this story and what it means for us today, that we would be filled with the joy, the great joy that you intend us to know. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. T'was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Marley was dead. There's no doubt whatever about that. Dead as a doornail. Do you all know what that's from? Three of you know where that's from. Now, what do those two things have in common? 
They're both fiction, right? "'Twas the night before Christmas." It's a lovely poem. As far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough, right? And A Christmas Carol, it's a great book. You know, I read that uh, three weeks ago for the first time. I'd never read the whole thing. I've seen all 35,000 renditions movie of, of the movie, uh, but I'd never actually read A Christmas Carol, and I read that a few weeks ago, and it was, it was great. It was wonderful as far as it goes, but doesn't really go far enough. But the, what's common about those is they are fiction, and we know they're fiction just the way they start. It's like once upon a time, right? Or long ago in a galaxy far, far away. You, you know we're getting into fiction. But what we call here the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 It is not fiction, and it's not presented as fiction. The way chapter 2 begins is, Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, firmly rooted in historical reality. We know who Caesar Augustus was, and we know that he called for a census because he was the first Roman emperor And he wanted to find out how many people he could tax. So he needed to know how many people could he tax. And how many people could he recruit for his army. And how big of an army would he need to rule over his people. So he had to know. And so he sent out the decree that everybody was to register for the census. It's historical fact. We know who Quirinius was. We can't say his name, but we know who he was. And this is all rooted in true history. It's real. And Luke wants us to know it's real. And so he adds all of these details that tie so many things together in secular history and in biblical history. This decree went out to be taken of all the inhabited earth. That's the entire Roman Empire. It's the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, or maybe not governor, but certainly an administrator. Everyone was on his way to register. That makes sense what they would all do. Joseph went from Galilee because that's where he was uh, living, but he's from from Bethlehem down. He's from the city of David, so he goes down to Bethlehem just as the prophets predicted the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And, of course, he's taking along his his, uh, pregnant wife, and they get there, and she gives birth to this child, and they lay him in the manger, Maybe out in the stable, as all the nativity scenes show, it's also possible uh, that this was a spare guest room in relatives' home, and they would have kept the animals, some of the animals, inside the guest room in the bitter cold, and, uh, and that's what it's talking about. That's not significant, other than it ruins all of our nativity scenes, if that's the way it is. But. And then as Kyle walked through the kids, the shepherds were there keeping watch of their flock, and then we get the heart of what I want to talk about. The, the angel comes, and the shepherds are afraid. Now, uh, I love to sing as well, Dave. I, and I told you, I love Christmas time, and I love the Christmas music. The problem with Christmas music is they almost get the entire drama wrong. The, the sentiment, the mood that is created by most of our Christmas songs, get it wrong. 
And none more so than one of the songs we just sang, which I love, and we will keep singing from now on. The one where y'all came in early because you thought it's time to go to the chorus, right? The glow, oh, 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 yes. You were ready to go there, but we went to verse two instead and fooled you. And that's okay. That is a beautiful song, but it's almost entirely wrong. I'm going to ruin one of your favorite Christmas songs today. We go astray beginning in verse 9, and it's because of a little word, little two-letter word, an. Now, some of you have heard me really emphasize the importance of little words. When we talk about uh, husbands loving your wives as Christ loves the church, that's a huge little word, as. Or wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, same huge little word, so. God so loved the world. This morning in Sunday seminar, we talked about the importance of so. Well, this little word, an, throws us off. Think back to your biblical knowledge here. You've all read the Bible, right? Like maybe more than once. This is not an angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. The problem with the word and is it makes you think of all the angels of the Lord, this is one of them, and probably a significant one like Gabriel and Michael, right? Don't think that's what's going on here. Uh, The reason that it translates it and angel of the Lord is because in the Greek language, there's no article before angel here. There's no definite article. A definite article is the, right? If I say um, I have a wife, you might think I have more than one, right? But if I say the wife, you know I'm talking about the one and only. That's how articles work in English and in Greek. In In the Greek, there's no definite article. It doesn't say the angel. And so the translators translate it an angel, which makes you think it's just one of some. But this same phrase occurs over and over again in the Old Testament. And when the Greeks translated the Old Testament, say in in the burning bush scenario, when an angel of the Lord spoke to Moses, who is it who spoke to Moses? It wasn't Michael. It wasn't Gabriel. It was God himself. He said, Moses, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground because I, the Holy One of Israel, is here. The angel of the Lord. The problem is in the Greek, there's no article. But everybody understands that's God speaking. Many, many times in the Old Testament, the Greek translation doesn't have the article, but it's clearly talking about God. Well, the clincher here is the next phrase. The glory of the Lord shone around him. Again, do you know your Old Testament? The glory of the Lord is the refulgent, resplendent, brilliant, bright, shining sunlight in the middle of the night when God showed it up to Israel. In the day, he led them by the cloud because they could see a cloud. But at night... 
the glory of the Lord was like fire. And everybody in the Old Testament had a very somber tone, a somber mood when the glory of the Lord showed up because it was God himself. This is the glory of the Lord that made Moses' face so brilliant, so, so bright that the people said, cover it up. We can't stand the glow that's coming off of your face. That was no angel, folks. That was God himself. This is nothing less than the angel Lord. God showed up this night to declare the birth of his son. And then we're not helped by our English translations in verse 13 when it says, suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Now we just sang the beautiful song, angels we have heard on high. And is it verse 2 that goes, sing choirs of angels, sing an exaltation, Oh, sing all you citizens of heaven above, right? Isn't that, the, isn't that how it goes? So we know that's taken from this verse. And so the imagery we have here is the shepherds are out in the middle of the dark and the bright light gets all their attention, of course, and God shows up to announce the birth of Christ. And then a whole choir of angels shows up to sing. But it doesn't say they sang. Look at your Bible. It doesn't say they sang. My undergraduate degree is in music. And as a music major, I either had to be in choir or I had to be in the orchestra. And since I didn't play any orchestral music uh, instruments, I was in the choir. And I'm very thankful to have joined that choir because that's where I met the wife. She, I didn't know she was going to be the wife, but that's where Krista and I met, was in the choir. And we had one of the best musicians I've ever known in my life as our choir director. His name was Dr. Van Tyne, Bruce Van Tyne. And man, could this guy pull together a choir. There were 60 of us at the time. We toured all over the, the southern U.S. And, and it, it, he got more out of uh, this choir than anybody I've ever known. He was brilliant. And as the conductor, you know, he'd always stand out there. The choir would be up here in front of the audience, and he would stand down at the, at the, at the bottom uh, conducting us. And he did not do what most choir conductors do. Most choir conductors is when it's time to sing, they set the uh, tempo. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Sing. Oh, no, no. He would never do that. First of all, we had to know our pieces inside out and backwards. We had it memorized. We were not allowed to carry music with us. And we'd have, you know, an hour and a half uh, of music memorized. And this is not uh, simple music. We had to learn the whole thing. So when he would, he would turn around and he would explain to the congregation, to the audience, what this next song was going to be about or whatever. And then he would turn to us. And I still, like, man, I'm getting, I'm having a reaction here thinking about it. He would turn around and he would just look at us. And he would lift his hand like this. And, I mean, you could hear a pin drop. Everybody in the congregation is like, something's going to happen. What's going to happen? And we're all locked in on Dr. Van Tyne's hand. And he would just pause. Boom. And we would come in perfectly every time. 
And he knew, which he, he, didn't, he didn't do the typical one, two, three, four stuff that most conductors do. His whole body was his baton. And man, when it was time for us to get big, his whole body would be moving. It was slow. He would just get so, he'd get like this, and he'd just be shaking his head like, no, shh, quieter, quieter. And we would get down, and we'd be singing like this. And then wham, and he'd punch the air. Boom, and we'd come in. It was moving. And I'm telling you, all of us on, on, in the risers and everybody in the audience, man, he had us completely from the starting of the very first song to the end. And we were, we were completely immersed in what was going on there. And the emotion, the sentiment, the experience that everybody had was sometimes great exaltation and, and wonder and just, oh, huge songs and sometimes deep and dramatic. And, whew. But let me tell you what nobody in any audience of any concert we ever gave ever experienced for a second Terror. Nobody in the history of mankind has been terrified by men and women in blue robes or black robes. When we marched in in our risers and took our places and stood there, people were not going, don't hurt us. I mean, the last thing a man wants to be called is a choir boy does not strike terror in the hearts of people to be called a choir boy. In fact, part of what I'm doing right here is trying to make sure you understand that being a choir is still manly. Because that's not your first thought when you think of, of choir. This is not a choir of angels. I wish the translators would translate it strictly to the Greek here. What showed up that night was not a choir. Host in the Bible means army. Don't think choir. What these shepherds saw is much closer to a military lineup. Think for a moment of, you've seen these scenes in movies where the general, maybe the president of, of whatever nation himself, the dictator, stands up in front of the assembly with, with all of the army gathered on the floor and then maybe there are citizens around on the outside and he is, he is the, the, the general or the president is giving intense battle cries or, or some kind of rousing speech to get all the people excited. And then when he finishes, the army goes, huzzah, huzzah, huzzah. That's much closer to what was going on here. This army was not singing, as, as precious as that song is. They were saying, and I would put my money on, they were shouting, glory to God and peace on earth. Glory to God and peace on earth. That's why the shepherds were terrified. Because they saw the array of these military soldiers 
First of all, they saw God himself, and then they see this array of soldiers screaming out this, and they were ready to fall on their face before this multitude of armies. You're never going to sing that song again the same way, are you? So the question is, why? Why does God show up? Okay, well, we get that. It's his son. Why does he bring with him an army to announce the birth of Jesus? Because Jesus is a king. He's the prince of peace. We saw this last week. He is wonderful counselor. Remember we talked about what counselor means there. Military strategist. And he's going to be given a kingdom. And God shows up with a literal army of angels. Do you see why I'm so desperate every year to make you forget this idea that Christmas is cute? There is nothing cute about this. They were terrified. I mean, you can imagine if an army of human beings lined up outside the door here, and we saw hundreds of armed soldiers, and we weren't sure why they were here, and especially if they were wearing a uniform that doesn't have the right insignia on it, right? Now imagine them in the sky and whatever God makes the heavenly army look like. You better believe they were terrified. God was bringing the army of heaven to announce the king has been born. Notice the irony. Chapter 1 begins, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Like I said, this is the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And he was given the title Augustus later on. It's where we get our month August from him. Augustus, the word itself, comes from the Latin... And it means increasing. An august performance means it has increased to the highest level of achievement. It then became the word for venerable. It was not a military term. It was a religious term. Can you imagine? Later on, the Romans gave this Caesar, this is Octavian, gave this Caesar the name Venerable One, Preeminent One, Increased One, August One. And you know what uh, Caesar Augustus established in Rome? The Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. He was such a gifted leader and administrator that for generations, Rome had relative peace among all their enemies. 
Where's Caesar Augustus now? Where's the Pax Romana now? Where's the Roman Empire now? Here in the days of the august Caesar who's bringing the Pax Romana, a child was born who is Christ the King, the Lord, who will be given a kingdom and a dominion and a rulership that will never come to an end, nor will his peace ever end. Oh, the irony in the days of Caesar Augustus, there's born for you today a Savior, Messiah, the Lord. And the angels, the army, cries out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This is the news God told them, the shepherds. This is the news that is to create great joy in their hearts. The Messiah has come. The King has come. Be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always. So I, I've been asking myself this week, when we are not joyful, why are we not joyful? When you are not filled with joy, why? Everything in my mind comes down to one word, unbelief. Unbelief. If we believe this is historical truth, then we have to be people of joy. The Messiah really has been born. The Lord really has come. He's called first the Savior, right? In the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior. Well, sometimes our belief that we need a Savior is lower than it ought to be. Sometimes we forget, especially if you grew up in the church. If you grew up in a good home where you were not allowed to go off the rails, where you were, you were disciplined and you were taught well and trained well, it is, it is sometimes hard to really grasp the, the full need of a Savior. I, I've told you before, I'm thankful for a boring testimony. My kids have boring testimonies. Make sure you stay that way where my kids are. Make sure your testimony remains boring. Praise the Lord for that. But certainly if you've lived a life of absolute rebellion and wanton sinfulness and then are brought to your knees in repentance, you know exactly what you were saved from. And sometimes for those of us who are raised in good homes and, and the Lord grabbed us early, it, in theory we can understand what it's like, but we don't have the same existential experience of outright rebellion and now 
faith. I, I don't remember a time in my life that I did not believe in Jesus. I know there was that time, but I don't remember it. So sometimes I think we just we, we minimize our sin and our need, and we're, we're not filled with joy because it, it's not all that good news that he's our Savior, because we're just so familiar with that idea. But sometimes I think we don't really believe that he is Lord. Uh, of course, we know it, we say it, we get it right on the theology exam, but that's not the same thing as living as though he's Lord. Let me ask you this question. You know this, uh, this statement in Hebrews. I'm sure you know this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. You do know this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, and here's what it says about Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, somebody saying it out loud. Good job, Sophie. Was that you? Good work. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You know what comes next? Say it again. What is it? And sat down, or has sat down at the right hand of God. Where? The throne of God. The right hand of the throne of God. Now, so often when we study that, memorize it, say it, we think about Christ enduring the cross. That's not the point. What is it that got him through the cross? the joy set before him. When did he experience that joy? I think sometimes we think Jesus' joy is still yet future. Jesus' joy is now. As soon as he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, he received the joy that drove him to Endure the cross. What has Jesus been doing for the last 2,000 years? He is not waiting. See, we're waiting. We're waiting for him to come back. Jesus is not waiting. Jesus has entered his joy. For two millennia, he has been in his joy. And what has he been doing? Building his kingdom. Expanding his peace across this globe? Now, what impact does that have for you and me? He is leading the host of heaven, the army of heaven, to destroy all of his enemies. That's what he said he would do. All of his enemies are going to be placed under his feet. The last enemy is what? death. That's not the first enemy. That's the last enemy. First is not last. I mean, Jesus did say something kind of confusing, like the first shall be last, but he didn't mean this. The first 
no, the last enemy is death. In the meantime, between now, between, between the, the coming of Christ the first time and the ending of that last enemy is him defeating all the rest of his enemies. So he is doing that. He is conquering nations every day. He is bringing people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light every day. There are millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of believers today. And the peace of Christ is spreading. And every time a king rises up to try to thwart Jesus, Jesus is going to snuff him out. Think about this. Who are the kings of America? We are. Because we vote in our representatives. And if we keep electing people who make laws that are in direct violation of King Jesus, eventually he's going to squash the enemy. His patience will not last forever. And that's what he's doing all across the world as he builds his kingdom. Now he does it in military ways. We do it through preaching of the gospel as we see people coming to faith, and now he establishes peace and his kingdom. Jesus said after the resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Not 2,000 years from now, not 5,000 years from now, right there that day. What that means is everything that's happening in your life is because King Jesus is at work in your life. The hard things for whatever reason, your high king has determined that what is best for you right now is this trial. The things that make us happy, that we love to experience, your high king Jesus, who's reigning over heaven and earth, has decided you are to receive this good, blessed thing. If those things are true, how can you not be filled with joy? Your trials have a purpose, beloved. They're not accidents. They're not random events. They have a purpose sent by your king. And it's good even if it hurts. And all the joys and blessings and happiness and, and, and wonderful experiences, those are sent by Jesus too. Because the King of Kings has come. And He died on the cross to take away all of your sin and punishment. He's your Savior. And He's the Messiah. And He's the Lord. And He is at work in every aspect of your life. From the big things to the little bitty things. Like the hairs on your head. Even you, Dan, the hairs that are not on your head, he's sovereign over. He's blessed you with nice shininess right there. Beautiful. We have to believe this. Number one, because it's true. This happened in time and space. It's real. And number two, because it's the only thing that gives meaning and purpose to what we're about. So I ask you, are you filled with joy? Is Jesus, is the news of Jesus, is it great joy? That's what he says, right? I have good news of great joy, not, you know, mediocre joy, 
level three joy, medium-sized joy, take it or leave it joy, kind of so-so. That's not what he said. This is the God of the universe. The angel of the Lord showed up and said, I have good news of great joy. The Greek word is mega joy. Because Christ born, dead, raised, and reigning over every single detail of your life. And he's called us to join the army. Not your kind of army, Jacob. Much more important army than that one. Every person in this room is a soldier enlisted to defeat the powers of darkness and expand the peace and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And along the way, he fills us with so many things, so many blessings. He's a good king. I mean, think about all the good things in your life. You got get a couple of these at work? How many great things happened because you got two of these? Like, when I get done here in about an hour, you're know, some of you can be doing something like this. When you're doing that, or this, when you're doing that, I want you to stop and just look at these two things and say, thank you, King Jesus that I can pick up my food. And then think, think about anything I hear. Thank you, Jesus, I can taste my food. And then thank him for flavor. It could have all been saltines. But he gave us flavors. And on and on the list goes. He is a good king. And for those of us in his kingdom to not be people of rejoicing can only be some level of unbelief. Good Christian men and women, rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, it's true, it's true, it's historically true. Right now, you, Jesus, reign over heaven and earth. And that's not some ethereal thing. That is not some spiritual pie-in-the-sky thing. You are reigning over physical, earthy, human, dirt, animals, hair follicles, taste buds, missiles, lawmakers, disease, medication, encouragement, strength, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, everything that's happening on planet Earth, Jesus, you are its king. And you came here to die for us. And you rose to rule over us. This Christmas season and forevermore, make us soldiers who rejoice. Amen.